Well, it's October, and you know what that means. October is Pastor Appreciation Month. Can you imagine a more self-serving introduction to a sermon than that? But actually, I've got a point to all of that, because in today's text, we're going to look at what are God's expectations for a minister. And to be honest with you, they're very often quite different from the expectation that much of the world has for a minister. If you talk to your average Joe on the street and ask him, what do you look for in a minister? Probably hear two things, a nice guy who's not boring, right? Well, there's times when a pastor does not need to be a nice guy. He does not need to tickle ears. He needs to tell people the truth. And sometimes he may come off as not a very nice guy. And there's sometimes a pastor just needs to be plain boring. That you need to hear things that you've heard before and you need to hear deep truths and you just need to learn to pay attention, right? And the definition of boring these days in our media-soaked world is, is, uh, is, is, is pretty low these days. So we're going to look at scriptures today and we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul says are the God's expectations for a minister. And uh, we're going to do so in the context of October, which is not only Pastor's Appreciation Month, which, by the way, is a little awkward. I mean, is there like Dental Hygienist Appreciation Month? <laughs> I don't think there is. I mean, so it's a little awkward. But it's not only uh, Pastor's Appreciation Month, it's also Reformation Month. And one of the great truths of the Protestant Reformation was rediscovering what are God's expectations for a pastor. That light came in and showed the truth of what God expects of clergy in a time when the church clergy was full of corruption and immorality and ignorance. So we're going to go to school on the Apostle Paul again this morning in 2 Corinthians, his most personal letter, as he is defending his ministry before the Corinthians against the attack of false teachers. And in so doing... We're going to learn what a God is to expect amongst ministers and also, by, by association, what he expects of you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, we do turn to you in faith right now. and We pray, God, that you would just show us truth in your holy word. We are desperate to know your definitions, your expectations, as opposed to those of the world. Indeed, Lord, we are battling the world's expectations right now, and we always will be. And our great weapon is to know the truth. What do you expect of pastors? What do you expect of parishioners? What do you expect of clergy? What do you expect of congregations? Show us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 3. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 6 today. Uh, and uh, I'm going to read the verse in its entirety, and then we'll look at the... Uh, uh, various uh, five points here that uh, the apostle makes clear to us. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, God says, and Paul writes, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men being manifested that you are the letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 
For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So as you look here, as Paul is kind of capitalizing on something he said back in chapter 2, verse 16, that who is adequate for these things? He asked the question, who is adequate for these things? Uh, Second Corinthians, if you're struggling uh, with, with what the world would call self-image, or if you were just uh, uh, beating yourself up all the time, and you consider yourself a loser and that kind of thing, Second Corinthians is the book for you in many ways, because it, it, actually, it actually shows how important being inadequate is in many ways. Because in, indeed, those people who think they are adequate everything are not people who receive the grace of God. We are in recipients of grace. We therefore recognize our great need of God that we cannot be him. We cannot replace him and we cannot earn his favor through our good works. But the apostle Paul has been discredited by false teachers. So he has to do something that's a little awkward for him. It's kind of like awkward, like telling everybody that it's pastor appreciation. Month. He has to defend his ministry. But the fact is this, if, that if Paul's ministry fails, the church of Jesus Christ fails. That's one reason why heretics are always attacking the letters of Paul. If they can get rid of Paul, they can get rid of grace and they can go back and they just, we can have just one more little religion that's harmless and won't cause anybody any trouble and won't expect anything of people. But we're going to see here, as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, five different points. We're going to see the manner of living for a, God's expectations for ministers uh, in uh, verse uh, 1, manifestations of effectiveness, effectiveness in verses 2 through 3. Ministerial calling in verse 4, uh, they are made adequate by God in verses 5 through 6a, and then 6b, a message of the new covenant. And you might uh, find it helpful for you to follow the outline uh, in your home group helps insert. But so first of all, we see here this manner of living here uh, in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? Now, now here's an important point, and quite frankly, it's a terrifying point. God has higher expectations for Christian ministers. He has higher expectations for teachers. Uh, We are a teaching church. We try to and we want to. It is our ambition to produce teachers. And we have several people in seminary now. We have quite a number of opportunities for people to teach. And there are teaching right now. And, And this scares every one of them. Because God, and it makes sense, it's a blow against hypocrisy. If you're going to preach truth, you need to live truth. So there is a manner of living that is an expectation of the Christian pastor. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders, this is to the congregation, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. That's interesting, isn't it? That's interesting. Uh, Elder Chad Brendel, as an officer of the church, as a shepherd of the church, is going to be given an account about the spiritual life of Sonny Kenny. Uh, and that's a, that's a kind of a scary thought. But there is a responsibility there that God calls people into, and it's, and it's a fitting responsibility. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such... We will incur a stricter judgment. The judgment that I have before the Lord, I'm looking around trying to see if this is true or not, but the judgment that I will have before the Lord on how I live my life will probably be harder and heavier than anybody else in this room. That's kind of scary. If any of you who know me, and most of you do, I'm not an imperfect man. But I understand that. That's part of the calling. There will be a stricter judgment judgment as a result of this there's this there's just certain liberty certain things that as your leader 
or as the teachers of this church, they they're just cannot do, and they won't do, and they shouldn't do, because the manner of living is one of those things that God expects of ministers here. But it's interesting, you know, Christians desire humility, and what we find here is that Paul's having to kind of, uh, again, defend his ministry here, and, 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 and he does so with uh, basically two questions that sort of form a rebuke to the Corinthians here. Both of the questions are framed in the sense that the answer is no to them. The first question is, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And the answer is no. Paul is not beginning to commend himself. That idea of commend is to introduce. Uh, and uh, Paul is saying, do we really need to introduce ourselves to you again? We planted this church. We were here for uh, 18 months. I have written to you. I have borne you. I have kept up night after night worrying about you. Do I really have to go and introduce myself to you again? As uh, the, the false teachers uh, had said lies about him and suggested that he needed to do so. He'll tell the Corinthians, Corinthians further on in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord, for it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but the one who the Lord commends. So the apostle Paul came to Corinth under the Lord's direction as part of the Macedonian vision. Does he really have to demonstrate who he is again to these people who saw him every single day, who saw him live out his life, who saw him suffer for the truth? The second one is, uh, or do you, we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? Again, the answer is no. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, you know, communication was very imperfect during the, uh, the, the Roman uh, world. And, and what you would do is if you were going to travel or go from one city to another, uh, and it would be my hope if I'm going to travel from uh, uh, somewhere, maybe Ephesus uh, to, to Corinth, I would take with me letters of commendation. And uh, if because I would want to stay with someone and they want to be able to be able to trust me if I'm going to stay in their home or I'm going to do business with someone. They want to be able to trust me if I'm going to do ministry. They want to know that what I teach is orthodox. I would carry a letter with me and say, here I am. Hello, my name is Steve. And uh, here's my letter of commendation from Billy. And well, we love Billy. What does Billy say? Billy says, Steve's great. Come on in. Unpack your things. Supper will be ready in an hour. Right. I probably could have worked on that part of the illustration a little bit more. But the point is this, is that they carry these letters of commendation. They would have little satchels and they would, they would present these to them. So that's kind of what he's talking about here. Uh, there, there's sort of a, a connection between a mutual acquaintance and that sort of thing. And, and Paul is not condemning the practice. He actually writes letters of commendation. Romans chapter 16, verse 1, he says this, I commend to you, he's writing to the Romans from Corinth, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is in Chentria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you will help her in whatever matter she may have need of, for she herself has also been a helper of mine and of myself as well. I mean, if you read the letter Philemon, right? It's basically the whole letter is a letter of commendation for Nisiphorus. I mean, it's, uh, he's, he's writing to Philemon to, to, to commend him. So, that's, so he's not condemning the practice, but what's happening here is these false teachers are demanding that Paul kind of give his resume again. And Paul goes on, you were my resume. <laughs> I lived out my resume before you. You ought to be able to live such an authentic Christian life that you don't have to defend yourself. In fact, if you are living an authentic Christian life, and, and, and I tell you this generation, I think the generation... Uh, where are we now? We're at Z, right? We're going to have to start all over again. The next one will be Generation A, I guess. But Generation Z, 
this generation wants more than anything authentic Christianity. They are starved for authentic Christianity. A lot of them grew up in mega churches with game show type techniques where they're trying to be marketed something and sold a product the whole time. And they don't want that. They want to be around real Christians who really care about the Bible, really care about others. And that's, that is a, a good demand. Are you the kind of person that they would want to hang out with? Are you an authentic Christian? How different would you be on Monday than you are right now on Sunday? So Paul is kind of defending himself here. He's basically saying, listen, I need no introduction. Reminds me of that old Clemson sticker of the Clemson t the Tiger t doing his top hat saying a Clemson man needs no introduction. It's kind of silly, but I kept thinking about that the whole time. The, a, a Christian man, a Christian woman really needs no introduction. Their life should be their introduction. So he doesn't need a letter of commendation uh, uh, to you or from you. Now, notice here, he seems to be implying here that the false teachers, you know, if you're going to be a false teacher and you're good at it, you can probably float into a Corinth and you can teach some other stuff and you can counter Paul and that kind of stuff, but you can't stick around too long. You're in trouble when Paul shows up, right? So you kind of come and do your damage and you sort of move on. You're sort of the traveling false teacher salesman, right? But one of the things they would do before they moved on to go do bring damage to another church is they would say, would you please give us a letter of commendation as we go on to the next uh, city and, and, uh, and, and ruin that church? You know? And obviously these people, they haven't caught on to the falseness yet, so they, they're, they're trying to get letters of commendation. So Paul is saying, I don't need one from you either. I don't need one from you. You shouldn't be giving them to them basically here. He says basically, as we should be able to say, and as any minister should be able to say, read my life. Read my life and accept my ministry. Now we see here manifestations of effectiveness here. He basically says, you are our letter. Not only should we read the minister's life, but we ought to be able to read the congregations. You are our letter, which is much better than a, than a letter of paper written around by a false teacher. Look at your sanctification. Look at the number of people who've come to know the Lord through the ministry here. That is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work. You know, one of the we are seeing some just some wonderful things happen in our church. It's been this way for a couple of years. It's just been wonderful. I mean, it's been this way really since the beginning of the church. But in particular, in the last few years, there's just been some wonderful blessings from the Lord. And as the officers sit around talking about it, there's no one taking credit for this. There's just a remarkable movement of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is invited to this church every Sunday. And you are, you are, as vessels of the Holy Spirit, are doing wonderful things. And you're walking in holiness. And you're, and you're, you're going before the Lord in prayer. And you're wrestling with grief and, and discouragement and anxiety and depression. And you're, and you're moving on despite all those things. You, you, in a sense, are a letter of the ministry of this church. People will judge the ministry of this church by your lives. And as I'm looking around, I'm thinking, that's pretty good. That's a good thing, by and large. So, and this letter is written on hearts known and read by all men. You re it's really hard to hide hypocrisy for very long. Uh, if you have been wounded by slander, you have been in association with narcissistic peoples and they've hurt you, eventually that's going to come out. We've even had people, when we planted this church, we've had people that were, that were very opposed to some of the people in our church who, who made phone calls even two, three, four years later and said, I need to apologize to you. I thought you were all wrong, and, and now I, I really understand you know, what it is that you're doing and what you're going through. Eventually, you're going to be vindicated, and you need to trust the Lord for that. 
But the fact is, is that people ought to be able to see a change in your lifestyle. Uh, <clears throat> Titus 3, 3 through 7 says this, For we were all once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But, one of those wonderful transitions, buts of Scripture, but when the kindness of our God, of God our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Wow. Now, this is a good message, too. Notice all the grace language of that passage in in Titus. Some of you are trying to write a good letter to others for others to read, be a a sterling citizen in your own effort. You're legalists. The message that you've heard and that you keep trying to apply is just try harder, try harder, try harder. You know what this Titus passage says? You can't. You're evil. You need the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to come in and regenerate you. Then... You will have a love for the law instead of the law condemning you all the time. Then you will have the Holy Spirit to empower you towards obedience. I think of an example. One of our, our Anderson University students, he's not here today. He's on fall break. But um, one of uh, our students, he joined the church last week and I didn't, I mean last year, uh, and I didn't get the connection. But I knew his granddaddy. His granddaddy was at our church in Columbia. Uh, it, to give you a sense, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. His grandfather was the Alan Woody of our church in Columbia. You know what I mean? He was like the handyman. He was there all the time, always faithful. And, uh, and, uh, but his grandfather got saved later on in life. He used to own Heights Restaurant in Lexington. And back in the days before Lexington became the sprawling metropolitan, uh, you would go through Heights. And if you wanted to head towards Saluda, I mean, towards Lexington, if you wanted to head towards Saluda, you'd take a ride at Heights. There was a big oak tree right there. Everybody knew Heights Restaurant. And he got saved. And one of his testimonies is, I used to cuss like a sailor all the time. Just, and he was kind of a big, uh, kind of a little bit of gruff guy. And he said, and one of the things, one of the first prayers I had when I became a Christian was, God, fix my mouth. I'm a man of unclean lips, Isaiah. And you know what? He did. He did. He just stopped cussing. I've known a man who was an alcoholic who was able to stop drinking immediately once he became a savior. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. Matter of fact, I asked this guy, can you give me a little bit of that non-cussing spirit when I do carpentry work? <laughs> you know? <laughs> But there really is a, a, a testimony there uh, of just of, of, of a cleanness that we all desire. We don't always see, but we all desire that ought to be able to be read by all men. Paul says here, you are a letter. When the word of God is preached and taught, it is Christ who is speaking to you. Uh, as Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. That, uh, you know, this is one of the things, I, I am actually, we, we do tend to teach through whole books of the Bible. Sometimes we can do topical, uh, uh, biblically-based sermons. But all of our teaching stations tend to really emphasize uh, the word of the Lord. For, I'll be honest with you, is it because we're just so courageous and we want to preach the word? Yeah, maybe, but actually, we're afraid not to. You, you know, uh, my words can return void, but the Lord's words do not return void. So Paul's reminding him, listen, what I did is I took God's words and I brought them to you. And they transformed your life. They transformed your life. 
You know, one of my, again, one of my favorite testimonies of that is the fellow down in Columbia who, who got saved while reading through Genesis, and the verse was about Noah's ark, and, and the verse was, and God shut the door. Now, now you're going to have to break that verse down for me. And God shut the door. Why would you fall on your knees and ask for, for Jesus Christ to come into your life and for you to receive grace at the words, and God shut the door? Well, the only answer is this. It's God's word, and it does not return void. And he realized God is overall. He is awesome. He is good. He is gracious. And I'm on the wrong side, <laughs> and I need him. And that man is a dynamic Christian to this day. And God shut the door. That's the power of the word of God. Paul's tearing about this. And they were cared for them. That word is cared for is also ministered. He, he ministered to them. Uh, the letter that they have is not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. A, a, a letter written by ink can be a dead letter, but the spirit of the living God gives a living letter. Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. This is one reason why I love being a Calvinist. There's just this anti-manipulation bent that we have as Calvinists. We let the word do the teaching. We let the spirit do the work. I don't have to trick you into becoming a Christian. I don't have to manipulate you into doing so. It's, it's just honest, isn't it? And this is what Paul's saying here. There's just no, there's nothing. I didn't come in here. I'm not a schlickmeister. I'm not an entertainer. I'm not a magician. God gave me words, which I gave to you. It's that simple. And the transformation was amazing. Notice the contrast he starts doing. Uh, he says, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What are the tablets of stone he's talking about? What are the tablets of stone he's talking about? Well, he's referring back to the Ten Commandments, where, where God miraculously wrote on tablets of stone and gave them to Moses, the Ten Commandments, the, the law of God. But he's saying there's something, as, as wonderful that was, and, and listen, again, that's what Moses really emphasized in the Pentateuch, the giving of the law in Sinai, right? I mean, wouldn't you love for God just to write you something and hand it to you? As wonderful as that was, it was nothing compared to Pentecost. Because the law stayed on the stone right there, and Pentecost gave us the Spirit, and we can apply that law to our hearts. It's a new covenant coming through. Sinai was amazing, but Pentecost was so much more amazing. And the wonderful thing about the Spirit is it does convict you of your sin. It also gives you the power to obey the sin, but it also reminds you that you are forgiven for your sins. The stone, the stone just can kind of condemns you. The, I mean, th this is one of the challenges of preaching and teaching through the Old Testament. I was talking to somebody who's in an Old Testament course, and they're going through all the Old Testament books, and, and it can just be a burden after a while. You just feel like such a failure. Who can measure up to this standard? That's sort of the point, Really? is to expose your, your sinfulness and your need for grace. But it's not without promise. And the people in the Old Testament were saved by grace just as well as the people in the New Testament. And this kind of brings back to, it's probably one of the issues that Paul is dealing with with the false teachers here. They probably have a Judaizing type influence similar to the false teachers that were in Galatia. And you remember, Galatians is, uh, is like Romans, but Paul wrote it when he was mad. <laughs> because these legalists came in and they were ruining the churches of Galatia. So Paul, uh, I'm going to look at verses uh, 1 through 3 and verse 11 of Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's strong language, isn't it? 
Paul's not such a nice guy sometimes. Uh, Before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to know from you. Did you receive the spirit of works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish as having begun by the spirit you were now perfected in the flesh? Now that by no, no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith, right? So he's having to kind of bring the same message out, evidently addressing the false teachers here in Corinth uh, as well. Now, the one of the things is Paul emphasizes grace so much, you can almost think he, he's abrogating the law. The law is not abrogated. And this is always the challenge. This is the challenge of coming to a church on one Sunday. You kind of need to be here for a season, because there's some of these Sundays you're going to think, that guy's an antinomian. He doesn't like the law of God. He's just always preaching grace, 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 grace. There's other Sundays you might come, ah, that guy's a legalist. He needs to emphasize grace a little bit more. There's going to be sometimes I'm going to say, you need to close with God and you need to repent from your sins. You're going to think, well, that guy's an Arminian. He's always talking about what I got to do. There's going to be other times when I talk about the sovereignty of God and you think, well, that guy's one of hyper-Calvinist, you know? There's a balance here, Right? And Paul is emphasizing grace because the, the law was wonderful. The law is good and holy, you know, but, but it's powerless unless the Holy Spirit applies it to your heart here. So we are to be people who live by the law, but we don't put our hope in the law. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So don't go, stay in the center of biblical tension and understand what Paul is saying here. Then we see his, his ministerial call in verse 4, such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Now, and you know, Paul, I remember when I first read Paul, I thought, boy, that guy's really confident, isn't he? Almost to the point of sounding arrogant sometimes. But where does he place his confidence? His confidence is in the Lord. Paul does not have to think too hard to remember what a scoundrel he was. He was literally a terrorist against Christianity here. So Paul, he notice he puts his confidence towards God. His focus is always going to be toward heaven on what God has done, not what man or what himself has done. And he remembers, Acts chapter 26, he remembers uh, uh, in giving testimony about what the Lord did uh, on the road to Damascus. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you were persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness. Ephesians 3, 7, I was made a minister, Paul saying again, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the power of his power. Who's he giving credit to there? He is the recipient of this ministry. He is not the creator of this ministry. So part of the calling, this is is what you need to look at, the minister's calling when you're trying to determine what God expects of a minister. Colossians 1, 23 and 25, I, Paul, was made a minister of this church. I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And he's really afraid of denying his calling. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. If the positive can't keep you in the game, the negative should, <laughs> you know? Uh, clergy turnover rate is, is probably one of the highest in any profession. And there's times when clergy have to go back to these words and go, you know what, I just don't have the option. I've been called by God to do this. I've got to stay in the fight. I've got to stay in the game. This is what Paul kind of tends to sort of emphasize here. But again, how is it that he can do this? He's not boasting his own abilities. Ephesians 3, I was made a minister according to the gift 
of God's grace. And that's where we get to verses 5 through 6, how, how Paul, you, are made adequate by God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate. Aren't those words of comfort? Aren't those words of comfort? Paul wants everybody to understand that he is not, he didn't create this thing. He doesn't think he's God's gift to the church. Well, he kind of does think he's God's gift to the church, but he didn't, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, he's not thinking, ooh, he's not like the lifeguard pastor, like, check me out. Can we just erase most of the last two minutes, you know? <laughs> uh, apart from God's power and wisdom, Paul was not adequate to rightly access or judge his ministry, nor did he conduct his own plans, but instead he followed God's leading. That's what you want. That's what you want. And you know what you, know what you, you call that kind of character trait? Humility. Humility. Boy, I mean, who wants an arrogant, cocky pastor? Who wants to be around an arrogant, cocky Christian? Be confident with your confidence in God. And a lot of us have learned the hard way. As soon as you start getting cocky about something, what's God going to do? He's going to break it. (laughs) He's going to break it. He's going to change you because your humility, your character is more important than your success. And he says here, emphasizing again, his adequacy is from God. He is not self-sufficient. He is completely God-sufficient. Y'all ever listen to Vance Havner? Some of you older people, no offense, but uh, Vance Havner's this great old Baptist minister. He used to come on the radio in Columbia sometimes, and I was listening to him 30 years ago. When I, when I was listening to the recordings, I thought, I think this guy actually is already dead. He's just sticking around for the donuts and the coffee after the funeral. I mean, he just sounded really, really old. I think he died in the mid-1980s. But Vance Haber said this, the Lord had the strength and I had the weakness, so we teamed up. And it's an unbeatable combination. Isn't that great? Kind of like salvation. The only thing I contribute to my salvation is my sin. Right? Jesus did everything else on the cross. Doesn't that take some pressure off? Doesn't that actually make you want to do more for the Lord? See, grace is not dangerous. Grace is empowering. I love that idea. This is Moses, right? Standing before the burning bush. The guy's been watching sheep for the last 30 years. So God's going to get him to watch human sheep for the rest of his life. Before the burning verse, Exodus chapter 40, God is telling him, I'm going to send you to go deliver my people. And then Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in the past, uh, which actually sounds kind of eloquent, uh, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Imagine a pastor that gets tongue-tied and rabbit trailed. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? I love the Lord's rebuke. Who's made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, not the Lord? Now then, go. And even, if I will, and, and, and even I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Hey, Moses, you know why you, you, know why you stammer? You know why you're not eloquent? Because I made you that way. If you were Herr Schlickmeister with the tongue, I couldn't use you. But I'm going to use all your stupidness to get the glory as you go deliver the people. So here's Moses protesting this. Would you have ever heard it? Moses would have been just one more dead shepherd in the, in the desert, right? Moses was used. He delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt. Look, the Lord used him to part the Red Sea. God met with him face to face. Why? Because God is adequate. You're not. 
Praise God. The rest is history. As Scott Hoffman says, indeed, the call of Moses demonstrates that these very obstacles are essential part of the call itself, illustrating clearly that God's grace, not the prophet's strength, is the source of his sufficiency. God's grace, not the prophet's strength. God's grace, not your strength, is the source of sufficiency. And then we see the message here, and this is so important, folks, because the message Oh, the message is being attacked left and right and compromised and watered down and twisted. What is this message? Of, uh, uh, it's the message of the new covenant, verses six through, 6b. God's expectations for pastors. As servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, Paul's not going to write a theological treatise here on the role of the law. He's going to expand this in the next few verses which we'll see, Lord willing, next, next Sunday. But, but his point here is a point of comparison here, right? We're servants of the new, new covenant, so you need to listen to the pastor's message. What's his message? Let me, let me help you out a little bit here, because some of you go to different churches, you listen to different things on the radio. You need to ask yourself, you might want to write this down. You need to ask yourself this question. When you listen to a sermon, ask yourself this question. Did Christ have to die and rise from the dead for that sermon to occur? Did Christ have to die and rise from the dead for that sermon to occur? If not, it ain't a sermon, it's a pep talk. Or he's selling you something. If Christ did not have to die and rise from the dead, it's just not a sermon. But let me tell you, this, this new prosperity gospel that's out there right now, it, it's, it's like, it's like soccer, soccer mom gospel. God wants you to lose weight. God wants you to have a career that's successful. God wants you to be able to overcome these difficulties in your life. It's all, it's all about here and now. It's all self-help. Self-help. Well, for you to be a better person, Christ didn't have to die. For you to have eternal salvation, he had to die. So that's the test of whether someone's teaching an appropriate new covenant message here. Of course, the new covenant was given to us. This was, I'm going to read it to you again, but this was uh, our assurance of pardon. It's an amazing assurance of pardon because it speaks of the hope. But, the, but one of the things about the new covenant comes to us from Jeremiah 31. It was written right after Josiah discovered the law, and there seems to be sort of a revival coming up. And guess what happened after the revival? Israel failed again. They blew it again. So God gives Jeremiah this new covenant. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Those days started coming, by the way, on December 25th, zero. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on the heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people." They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, saying to his brother, Know the Lord, for they will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Wow. That'll preach. <laughs> That's why you're here. Y'all are under this new covenant. You are people who have the Holy Spirit dwell in you. If you're a Christian, if you're not, you need to pray today that you become one. What a wonder it is. Wouldn't you love to remember your sin no more? Don't you hate when something stupid you said 25 years ago comes up in the back of your mind and you start going through all those emotions again? Why did I say that, you know? 
Why did I do that? Sometimes the effects of our sin still haunt us. God says, I don't remember it. That sin was nailed to the cross. That's one of my children. I adopted him into my family. He's perfect. She's perfect. That's a pretty powerful covenant. It doesn't that sound better than the law that came from Mount Sinai? It's not of the letter, but of the Spirit. There's a contrast here between Old and New Covenants. For the letter kills. Remember, Galatians 3.10. For as many as the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Curses everyone who does not abide for all things written in the book of the law to perform them. It's a great scene in Pilgrim's Progress. We need to do a Bible study or a a Sunday school on Pilgrim's Progress. But it's a great scene in Pilgrim's Progress. You know, if you remember, a Christian is loaded down with the burdens of his sin, and it's just, it's, it's distracting him. He just wants to get rid of his burden, right? He, can't, he wants to get rid of the guilt. He wants to get rid of the shame. He gets, wants to get rid of the continual practice of his sins. And, uh, and he runs into with Mr. Worldly Wise Man who gives him advice. Let me pick up here. Follow my instructions and you will be erased of your burden, which, of course, is what Christian wanted to hear. Rest assured that if you decide not to go back to the city of destruction... You can send for your wife and children so they may live here in the village of morality, being a better person. There are many empty houses in the village, and I am sure that, each, uh, that you can live in one of them for a reasonable rate. Daily necessities are also cheap good, and good there, and all the things you need to live a happier life, including honest neighbors, good credit, and fashionable surroundings. All these good things are waiting for you there, Christian. Now, Christian was rather taken aback by everything that Mr. Worldly Wiseman told him, but he presently concluded that if what the old gentleman said was true, then the wisest course was to take his advice. After reflecting on the matter for a moment, Christian spoke up. Sir, which way should I go to this honest Mr. Legality's house? Christian inquired. Do you see the hill in the distance? Uh, uh, The man answered. Yes, very well, said Christian. Go around that hill, and first house you come to is his. So Christian left the path to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. As Christian neared the hill, he was struck by how high and foreboding the hill appeared. One side of the hill hung precariously over the path that wound its way up. And Christian feared that the overhanging hill would fall on him. Filled with fear, Christian stopped his journey and stood still, wondering what he should do. His burden also now seemed heavier to him than it was just moments before he had taken this detour off the path that evangelists instructed him to follow. Flashes of fire came from the hill, and Christian was afraid that he would be burned. Christian began to sweat and quake with fear. He was sorry he had taken Mr. Worldly Wiseman's counsel. It was when he was thus filled with regret that he saw evangelists coming to meet him. At the sight of him, Christian began to blush in shame. That's a great example of the Galatians. What he began in the spirit, he tried to complete with the flesh. This is what Paul's point is, is the Corinthians, you've lost your way. You've forsaken grace. Then he contrasts here, the spirit gives life. The law shouts of our need of grace because we cannot keep it. The spirit shouts of God's love for us and his forgiveness towards us in breaking his law. So we can cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 119, how we love the law. It is our meditation all the day. I I think about Moses' ministry and Paul's ministry. I mean, those are kind of like the two big guys, right? I mean, there's like, there's going to be a line to meet them when we get to heaven. And, uh, Moses, Moses, I mean, if you read Moses' 
testimony. It's pretty spectacular. I mean, again, he parted the Red Sea and talked with God and the burning bush. But not only that, the Shekinah glory of God, sort of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, would, 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 would lead the people of Israel through the desert in a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. I mean, and then, uh, again, the Spirit, uh, the Shekinah glory would, would rest on Moses so his face glowed, right? But, to, but I can just see... When the Apostle Paul is ministering here to the Corinthians, Moses looking down on heaven and being so jealous because instead of following the Spirit through the desert, the desert lived inside the Corinthians' hearts. Do you know, realize how, much, how good we have it as Christians? Why would we go back to a, a, a legalistic outlook on life? Well, Oswald Chambers, you know, one of my favorite authors, said this kind of picking up on this theme of adequacy and how Paul talks about the grace of God makes us adequate. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. So what does God expect of ministers? What does God expect of you? To be a loving and obedient an inadequate nobody that really loves him and really seeks to please him. That's what God's expectations are for us. May we fulfill them in his grace. Father, we do look to you with dependence upon you, knowing our own failures, uh, the cockiness the, uh, of the world is such an insult uh, to the grace of God. And the most confident amongst us knows in their heart that they are a failure apart from the grace of God. So I pray, Father, that you would just fill us with the Holy Spirit, give us a love for your law, give us a love for others, and give us a desire to please you and the power to do so. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.